especially Steelers fans who clearly should have made it to the Super Bowl this year. Uh, with Big Ben having as massive of an arm as he has, uh, you know, we definitely should have been in. But I think that most of us here can agree at least Tom Brady is retiring. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Finally. Oh, sick of seeing him there. Okay. So <laughs> we are uh, not going to be having our lunch bowl, if you couldn't tell based off the video. Just want to put that out as a reminder to everyone that after church, we are uh, not going to be having that today. Now, my name is Pastor Jared. If you don't know me, I am the youth pastor here. I get to work with all of these fun guys over here. <laughs> and uh, for any new guests today, anyone that maybe this is your first time or maybe you've only come a couple of times uh, and you haven't stopped at our welcome desk yet, please do so. We have a gift for you and uh, we want to let you know about all the fun things that we are doing together as a church. So uh, before you leave this morning, make sure that you stop and see the person at the welcome desk. Now today, students, remember you're staying with us. I'm not, I'm not just forgetting you. You're, you're staying here. All right, so we're continuing in our series through Acts this morning. And I want to take a moment to thank God for the awesome uh, insight that he has given Pastor Travis through this series. You guys have been blessed by the word of the Lord this year. Give me an amen. 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 Yes, it, Travis has been like on fire through this, the, through this series and just really have loved getting to hear him. Our primary text this morning is going to be Acts 3, 1 through 10. But I want us to actually open up and start in Isaiah today. And as you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 16, I want you guys to consider this. The way that the Bible is written is very different than the way our books are written today. Okay? The design of Scripture is very different from the, the Western mindset. You see, the Bible was written as meditation literature. The author's intentions were that we would read and then reread and then dwell on the word that uh, we had read, okay? It's a little bit different. Um, and I want you guys to keep that in mind today as we read through this passage that was written by the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before the life and death of Jesus, all right? Again, Isaiah 42 1 through 16. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. Who, you who go down to the sea and all that fill it, the coastlands 
and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praises in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the awesome blessing of your son, Jesus. As we move forward into today's message, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, and that today somebody would walk away with something new. That, God, you would speak to our spirits, that your spirit would dwell in us, and that we would hear your voice, and that lives would be changed by your word and by your son. We pray these things in your heavenly name. Amen. Amen. So, I wanted to talk today, uh, open up with a little bit of a story about uh, my childhood, and not that far gone, as most of you would uh, point out, (laughs) but... I remember going to my cousin's house. Now, for those of you who grew up with lots of cousins, you might get where I'm coming from here. You go and you'd spend maybe a couple of weeks in the summer with your cousins and just hang out. Now, my cousin had a huge farm, and we would go there and make all kinds of trouble. He had BB guns when I didn't get mine until later, and then I shot my parents' uh, garage window and had to deal with that. That was another story that I told. But uh, we, we would just go out and have all kinds of fun, And I remember that he actually raised Jack Russell Terriers, uh, his family did. And I thought, man, how awesome would it be if I had as many dogs as my cousin? I thought, that is the life. He has so many uh, little little puppies running around, and they're so cute, and I I just want to take all of them home with me. And I didn't really know that dogs are a lot of work. And now we actually have three, and I look back and I'm like, oh man, that was not what I really wanted. I thought I wanted it. I thought that I wanted all these dogs, but man, three has maxed me out. Hannah's shaking her head no. She has fun with them, but oh my goodness, I'm done cleaning up after them too much. Also, do you guys like like puppies? I know that this is controversial and probably not going to win me any points, but like puppies are the worst. I like dogs. Dogs are great, but puppies are way too much work. Ugh, gross. Okay, that, that's my, my aside. Okay, you can turn your Bibles to Acts 3. Yeah, I'm sorry, Han. <laughs> Ralph is rough. Okay, Acts 3. And while you are turning there, I want to set up some context. And I tell our youth nearly every week that context is key if we want to understand Scripture. It's an important part of discipleship that we learn to start reading scripture as the spirit of God intends instead of us just going in and kind of picking out our favorite verses or the things that uh, most speak to us. I think that um, if they don't fall within an entire narrative, if we don't read it as if it's a part of a narrative, 
then we're missing something that God has intended for us. So the first three chapters of Acts form a triad, an important trio that's focused on the spirit and empowerment for witnesses, uh, witnessing to the name of Jesus that the spirit will bring. Chapter one was waiting for the spirit, where the followers of Jesus experienced his ascension, where he told them to wait on what he called the promise of the father. And that was the, the person of the Holy Spirit. Chapter two marked the coming of the spirit on the day of Pentecost. Um, it, the apostles and those near experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, the sound of rushing wind, the sights of the tongues of fire, and the miracles of speaking in the individual tongue of the people around them. And this led to 3,000 people giving their lives to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. And now chapter 3 shows the apostles being empowered by the Spirit. So again, we're in Acts 3, 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took, them, took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And recognizing him as one of the the one who sat at the beautiful gate at the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Whew, what a miracle. That's a beautiful blessing right there. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful blessing. Now, uh, today we're going to get a little bit nerdy and we're going to get detailed in this passage because there's a lot happening in this that a first century Christian would have automatically picked up on, but that we need to understand so that we can get the fullness of the wisdom of what's happening here. It may seem like this random healing on its face, but there's one thing that I know, is that God doesn't do anything without purpose. I think that it's important that we recognize that this is the only detailed account of the miracles performed in Jerusalem that was later described in Acts 5.12 that says, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. Um, so, you know, this description is that people were seeing miracles all over, but this is the most detailed that we get of what's happening in the ministry in Jerusalem. And that raises the question, what is the author here trying to convey? We open on the scene of the apostles Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now, for anyone who doesn't know who Peter and John were, they were disciples of Jesus that we see pretty prominently in the Gospels. And we know quite a bit about these men as Peter was the principal speaker of the apostles and John was the one who their master Jesus loved. 
and it's kind of funny, he's self-proclaimed <laughs> the one who Jesus loved. He, he puts that down in his own notes in uh, the Gospel of John. He's like, yeah, I'm the one that Jesus loved, just, just saying. So we know quite a bit uh, about these men. And another interesting thing is that both of them actually had brothers that were apostles as well. Peter had Andrew, and John had James. And it seems as though they were uh, partnered in friendship that exceeded the familial bonds that they had with their actual brothers. So you see here, you recognize they're not traveling around with their brothers who they probably would have been most familiar with, but they are partnering with the person uh, that was their friend that exceeded the, that family bond. Proverbs 18.24 says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. This is a Proverbs kind of friendship. It's a little bit different than just going out with some random buddy that's, you know, hey, we're just going to go out and try to share the news of Jesus they were people that were genuinely close and that were partnered in a singular mission. Now, remember, the newly formed church was being sent out for the Great Commission, okay? And I think it's pretty significant that they're being sent together, and that's why it's highlighted here. See, I, something I tell our kids is that sharing the gospel all on your own can be really hard, especially if you're walking into a hostile environment. Have you guys ever done that before? walked into somewhere where you knew that the message of God was either not going to be received well or that people had never heard of Jesus before. It's a little scary walking into that by yourself, right? Yeah. Jesus himself appointed the apostles to work in pairs, and I think it's for four reasons. One, training people two at a time is powerful. Jesus sent out his, his disciples by twos as a training exercise. His purpose in sending them out together was for spreading the gospel and the good news and growing the kingdom of God. This teamwork approach shows that people can encourage and empower those they walk with. It's obvious that Jesus used the power of influence, encouragement, and mutual learning to train his disciples. Jesus also gave his disciples authority over demons, as well as the power to heal the sick. Luke tells us about this action of Jesus in Luke 9, 1 through 5. It says, One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and heal all diseases. And then he took them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for your journey, he instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So they began to their circuit of villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. See, Jesus was intentional about pairing together these disciples. Because it was powerful. Second, the witness of two people is trustworthy. Two people together provides a valid witness. Why is the witness of more than one person important? The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy supports the principle of multiple witnesses. 
A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established, Deuteronomy 19.15. Instead of just sending out one person, Jesus created a support system by sending out two disciples together. He said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. It's important for us to be traveling together in pairs. Reason number three, working together by twos multiplies strength. Jesus gave the disciples authority when they worked together. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Jesus' teaching and training is also supported by Ecclesiastes. It says uh, in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, two are better for than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they may keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Fourth, supporting each other by twos is rewarding. Jesus showed that, that sending the disciples out by twos helped them to support one another in the things they witnessed and the observation of many miracles. The reason many congregations and churches are failing today is because they are not following what Jesus did. If a fellowship is going to be strong, it must follow the actions of Jesus. Let me say that for you guys again today. If a fellowship is going to be strong, it must follow the actions of Jesus. Developing the skills of people to support one another and work together is necessary for success. In the recruitment of his first four disciples, he focused on what the fishermen, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John knew best. He said, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. A powerful story about supporting one another can be found in the Old Testament book of Exodus. The Israelites were in a uh, battle with Amalek, and Moses was commanded by God to stand on the mountainside and hold his hands upward to heaven. And as long as he did this, the battle was going to be won. However, when he became weary and his arms dropped, the Israel, Israelites would start to lose. Exodus chapter 17 tells us how important it is to have support with you. Um, the Amalekites, uh, Amalekites sorry, came and attacked the Israelites at Raphidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men to go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. But when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. So they're going up together on the, to the temple, right? We see them going up together to the temple during the ninth hour. And now it seems that these new Christians were actually going up to the temple to pray to God, okay? And I think that this kind of had two purposes to it. 
okay? So they're going up to this, this same temple because it's a familiar place, right? We understand that these men that were now followers of Jesus were Jews. So this was a place that was very familiar for them to go and to pray, and it was a place where they could worship Yahweh. But second, it was a high-traffic area. At the hour of prayer, there would be many Jews that were entering the temple. And this presents the perfect opportunity for them to be able to reach many should the Spirit prompt them to do so. After all, they were told to share the good news, right? That's what they were there to do. So also note that this is during the ninth hour. Does anybody know where the last time we saw the ninth hour mentioned was in the Bible? At the crucifixion, right? Where Jesus had offered up his spirit to God. This was a very significant time and a very significant moment to the, um, the apostles that were going up to pray. So we see right now, it looks like the story and the picture that's being painted is being focused on the apostles, but we see it quickly change perspectives to this man who has been lame since birth. Verse two says, and a man lame from birth was being carried. And they lay daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask for alms of those entering the temple. I want you guys to consider this beggar man for a few moments. Not being able to walk around during those days would at the least be an inconvenience for the family. And most likely the entire society would have rejected him. He was a burden to the people. Do you guys know anybody in your life who might feel like this man, who might feel like a burden to the people around him? As a lame man, he would not be able to provide for himself. Most men would have learned the trade of their father. But being unable to stand, this man wouldn't have been able to do so. And being unemployed in those days, he was almost certainly homeless and his only source of income would be to beg for money at the temple gate. That's all this man had. He was a man who was rejected by the people that were around him. The most that his family could do for him or his friends could do for him was drop him off at the front of a gate and leave him there in hopes that he would make some money. So again, I ask you, do you know anyone in your life who you feel is just a burden? He wasn't allowed to live at the gate that he was placed at. The temple guards would have pushed him away at night. And we know that because scripture tells us that this coming to the gate was a daily event. And he was begging for the only thing that was going to sustain his life. Every day it was important that he received enough money and alms to feed himself. This was the only thing that he had to provide for himself. As the man sat there, Day in and day out, he would have noticed the same people that were coming and going. He would have been in on the local gossip of the day. And likely he would probably have known which people he could look at and ask to uh, receive money, right? Because he's saying, seeing probably mostly the same people coming every day. And he was able to pick out of the crowd, who am I going to call on to uh, ask for the money that I need? But... Why is this the gate that he chose? If it was that important to him, 
If his entire life depended on it, it would stand to reason that where he chose to beg was actually a pretty important decision, right? I did a bit of research into the actual gate, and because the, the actual reference can point to a few gates, most believe it would be this gate. Do we have that slide? It, uh, the last one was a map. It's kind of hard to tell up there. You can see the Temple Mount in the top right, and it would have been entering into the Temple Mount. Next slide. And this is what it would have looked like. Now, it's a little changed now. It's not as beautiful as it once was. Uh, Jerusalem has since been pillaged, and the gold and filigree that would have stood on this gate is gone at this point. But this is where he chose to beg, the golden gate or the beautiful gate located at the eastern wall of the old Jerusalem also called the gate of mercy or the gate of eternal life. It would have been the place where most of the Jews would be coming with their money to offer in tithes and alms. He'd also likely heard of these Christians who had sold their possessions and were giving an excess to the poor. You guys remember reading that in the last chapter. Um, we'd left off that they had sold everything and they were giving to the poor. So this actually seems like a pretty good location, right? We know the Christians are going up to the temple to pray. We know that they have sold everything that they own to give. Location, location, location. He picked the best spot to receive the greatest return on his time. So this beggar man who had sat in this spot so many times before was looking out and he was doing the only thing that he knew how to do. He calls out to a couple of men that were walking through the gate. And I'm sure he's at this point trying to tally up just how much these men are going to drop into his bucket. See, at this point, he was probably pretty used to sizing people up and figuring out who was going to give him what. His eyes skimming along them, and he's looking around at the other people around them, and then something really powerful happens. The story jumps perspective again and focuses on Peter and John. And instead of breezing past and dropping a few coins in, they look at this man, and Peter says what? Look at me. It kind of reminds me of uh, being in New York City. Who here has ever been to New York City before? Who here likes New York City? No. I'm, I'm going to tell a story, and uh, Hannah, don't, don't get upset. But uh, we, when I was in college, Hannah and I took a trip to New York, and it was the worst trip of my entire life. Oh, my goodness. So I get there at, like, 3 in the morning and wait for them to come in on their bus, and they're getting there at 7. So I sit on a bench waiting in, what was this, December? in New York City for uh, my fiance at the time to get there so that we can walk around. Now we were there from, I was there from 3 a.m. till 4 a.m. the next day. Um, this was not the most fun trip. <laughs> I, I don't ever wanna go back to New York City. That's, that's the, the message of this, the greater message. But uh, I remember walking through Chinatown. Who here has ever been through the Chinatown neighborhood district before? When you're going through there, there's vendors, right? And they're trying to sell. And the, the number one rule as you're walking through that town, don't make eye contact. 
right? Because the moment that you make eye contact, they're pulling you into their booth and you're buying a pair of sunglasses or a purse or watches or whatever it is that you don't need, they're going to sell it to you. (laughs) You know that second that you make eye contact, you've made a connection and they're going to pull you in. So I think that it kind of reminds me of this story with the, the, man, the lame beggar man that's standing there or sitting there. I think it's really fortunate, though, that Peter and John did not take my approach. You see, on a more serious note, how do we avoid people in our own town who stand on the sidewalk begging? I know that to avoid conversation, I've kept my gaze low or found a sudden interest in changing the radio station until the light turns green? What approach did Peter and John take? Hmm. So they look at him. And now the man is expecting that he's going to receive Peter and John's alms. That's the word that's used here, is expecting. And the Greek word for expecting here is prostikau which means to wait with anxiety. He is amped up in anticipation. How different would your walk with Jesus look if you had the same kind of expectancy of him? I'd call this faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is a stepping out with expectation that the Lord is going to act. So again, how would your life look different if you expected God to speak to your heart? Or if you expected God to put people in your path that you can share the gospel with? Change your worldview and watch God transform your life dramatically. Now this man, he's sitting there and he's expecting something of these men. But he didn't get exactly what he expected, right? Let's reread those verses, Acts 3, 6 through 10. It says, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. It says in an exclamation, right? Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he began, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. What a moment that must have been. I have no silver and gold. You know, for many This is the worst thing that a person can say to them. And I am sure that for this beggar man, it was a little bit of a punch to the gut. For a second there, a split second, this man looks at him, this guy that's sitting here and has nothing else, and he looks at him and he says, I don't have any silver or gold. That had to be a huge letdown. See, he thinks that the money he receives at the beautiful gate is the most important thing in the world. How many times do we get it twisted and make that which we desire the thing that we require? Looking at the surface, this guy, he seems to be right. How else is he going to feed himself or clothe himself? And for us, we look at it and we say, unless money comes in, I can't provide for my family. 
As a church, we look at it and say, unless that money comes in, we can't host events or even keep the lights on in this building or the heat that is right now killing me. Um, And yes, these are important things to consider, but I am telling you right here and right now that it is far better that our wallets are empty than to be lacking in, in the spirit. Peter and John knew this. Having just read uh, chapter 2, 44 through 47 about how the Christians sold all their possessions to support any among them who had need, the reader's, t- the reader's expectations are raised the same way as that man's would be, right? We're looking at it, and your first time reading this through, you're thinking, oh, this must be a story about how they're giving of themselves. Um, but instead of illustrating how generous the Christians were with their money, here Luke shows us the reason why material, material goods were so casually regarded. The Christians had something far better to share than money. What Peter had and gave was the wholeness that comes through faith in the name or authority of Christ Jesus. Peter declares the name of Jesus and his healing power and continuing with this personal touch that he's been using, making eye contact, looking down at him, he reaches down and pulls this man onto his feet and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. This is a special note from the author, Luke. For those of you who don't know who Luke is, he actually wrote the gospel of, does anybody know? Luke, yes. <laughs> he wrote the gospel of Luke. And see, Luke was a doctor, and he was able to describe exactly what was happening here. It seems that Luke may have actually interviewed this man as he was able to get such a, an exact description. The image that we get is of the sinew and bone being pulled back together. Dr. Luke was able to verify that the miracle that happened here had taken place. Looking back to that two or more being present. When the beggar felt the strength in his ankles, a strength that he had never experienced before, he realized at that moment that the God of creation, the name of Jesus of Nazareth, had, been, had brought about the grace of God in the healing of his legs. How do we respond to the grace of God in our lives? Those moment, moments where God enters our lives miraculously, And whether it's through the healing of our bodies or the long-awaited answered prayer and even the grace to live with unanswered prayer. What is our response? What should our response be? We all know what this man's response was in Acts 3.8. In leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And there we see our beggar entering church for the very first time, just experiencing God's grace upon his life. And the joy that spills out in this scene, most of us would be embarrassed to have that person around. When we truly experience the grace of God in our lives, it drives us to experience pure joy in our lives. Not all of us may be walking or leaping but we truly can be giving God the glory. Now, at the beginning of this message, I said that on its face, this passage was just about a miracle. But we know that God doesn't do anything without purpose. This miracle went deeper than just the man who had experienced it. 
I believe that the story wasn't really about this man. It wasn't about the lame beggar who was now leaping, but it was about the power of God. It was a portrait of God's restoration power. You see, the man that was lame from birth, that's us. Dead in our sins and in our trespasses since the day that we were born. Do you guys realize that the curse of sin was laid upon every single person? This man was us. We were unable to get up. We sat in the dust with no hope of the future. Our desires were so twisted that we don't even know what it is that we required to live. But just as suddenly as this man jumped up at the mighty name of Jesus, we have been raised in his name. As the Spirit through Peter healed this man, the Spirit is at work in us to heal the curse of sin that has rotted us from the inside. Next week, we're going to see more about that power of restoration, but you do not have to wait until next week to experience the restoration power of Jesus. You can experience that in your life today. And I'm telling you guys, the restoration power of Jesus is not just a one-time thing. I need God to restore me constantly. So if today you have never given your life to Jesus and you want to feel restoration in your life, if you want to be able to leap up at the name of Jesus, if you want to feel dancing and praising and joy in your life, I encourage you to go to him today and give your life to him. And if this is your first time making that commitment, our elders, they stand in the back and they're there to pray with you because we want to walk you through that and we want to praise with you. So today you are making that commitment for the first time, head to the back and pray with an elder and we are going to just celebrate what God is doing in your life. Now for those of you who are here today who you've given your life to Jesus before and you felt that praise and that joy, but lately you haven't felt it. You've been down, you've been hurt, things have been really hard. Maybe God's gotten put on a back burner in your life. Jesus restores you from that too. If you want deliverance from your pain, from your hurt, if you want deliverance from looking to things that aren't God to save us, if you want deliverance from the bondage of looking to money to solve your problems, if you want deliverance from looking to your health to save, you, to save your life, go to Jesus. If you want deliverance from any authority or power that's reigning over you, the only one who can do that is Christ Jesus. And we, again, we want to be there praying with you. We want to be battling with you because why? Two people together are stronger. Let us battle with you. I'm going to call the worship team up here in a moment as we go into our communion time. I want you guys to really focus in on what Christ Jesus has done in your lives and what he needs to still restore. So you may go to the sides and grab your communion, go to the back, and take it to God in prayer.
going to pray for us. If you'll, as you go back to your seats, bow your heads and close your eyes. Father God, again, I thank you for giving us another morning to be in your glorious presence. Lord, I pray today that for anyone who's experiencing oppression in their lives, for anyone who is experience, experiencing a locked into the things that we desire, that you will deliver us from that and help us to realize what we require. That the only thing that will deliver us, the only thing that will restore us is your son's name. Let us not forget that as we walk out of here today. In your name we pray. Amen.